difficult, really, to, to, to think about something original or, in fact, um, true to talk about death because it's, it's both spoken about so much, yet at the same time, undoubtedly, and this is almost now a cartoon of a comment, is particularly evasive in medicine and how we contend with it. It's a challenge, it's a difficulty, it's a big moral problem. So I thought I might start, in fact, by talking about what happens after we've died to our bodies, what, what um, happens to the physicality of our bodies, our matter, as we started with matter, and we, we were no further forward with it, really, an hour later. What happens to our ray? I mean, I don't know if you feel... Uh, I'm not suggesting you're closer to that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on how you choose to be disposed of, because, of course, you can be hygienically reduced to a little pyramid of ashes, and that's probably my choice of exile. I want to go out in a blaze of glory, as it were. Uh, the alternative, of course, is you are uh, buried, and the third is you might well be drowned at sea. But you're thinking, what happens before the no, ceremonial actually, what happens? So, yeah, what happens before that? And also, in fact, this may seem like a really trite question, what happens to the ashes? What happens to one underground? What happens to one at sea? Where does that stuff well, go? Well, I'm hoping very much what will happen to mine is what happened to Murphy's ashes in Beckett's novel, which is they were taken to the pub by someone who was absolutely bladdered, and he threw them across the room at someone who annoyed him. And I think... <laughs> I would think that would be a marvellous way of doubly underlining what's happened to me. That basically, my ashes contain nothing of my spirit. Yeah. And they return, though, thence, nonetheless, because they contain something of you if not your spirit. They well, return. they return to their ontological peers, like rocks and dog dirt and so on. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Christopher, is that, I mean, something that... It um, well, I've always had a slight... Is this on? Um, <laughs> ...problem with what to make of death at all, I suppose. And um, I once had chance dinner with a Zen monk, and um, I thought, well, this isn't something that happens very often. And I was sort of talking about how there were many sort of ideas of Buddhism that I liked, but I couldn't really take any comfort of the idea that somehow at the end we, we, you become one with everything. Mm. And, um, and I said to him, for me, no matter what death may, what may come on the other side of death, it isn't this. So I can't take any comfort in it because I want this. And he looked at me and he just said, why not? And I um, couldn't really answer that question. <laughs> what do you think he was pointing to with that question? I.e., I, you should take comfort. He felt that comfort. Well, that one just does, can't know. I mean, it's just unknowable. And I suppose I was interested when you say it's very hard to say anything true about death. And I've only had two experiences of being with a person who's dying and died in front of me. And one was my father. And I just remember thinking, I mean, yes, the grief and all the things that we know about, but the one thing I thought, nobody ever told me that it's the most amazing event. I mean, it's, it's the corollary of a birth. You know, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary thing that's happening in front of one's eyes. And um, the other thing that I hadn't been able to even begin to guess at was that when somebody dies, it's not about their end anymore. Suddenly, every moment of their life is of equal value. So my father, 
had been very, very ill and in great pain for two years. And the moment he died, he was incredibly relaxed. And I was just fascinated by the machinery of the body, you know, lifting up his arm and seeing the articulation and the re relaxation of the body and knowing that he wasn't there anymore, but still there was this amazing thing that was left behind and, and the comfort of the life that is then released. And that kind of fits in with a physical description of we don't have an idea in physics of a, move, of a privileged now. All moments exist equally. And one, it was one of the things that really troubled Einstein was why do human beings feel as if they're going through time? And why, we don't know why we have this experience of going through time. And so perhaps that's what death is. Perhaps it's a bit like Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. Perhaps we suddenly get all our moments because they're just there forever, you know, because that's how the universe is. It's laid out. Perpetually repeating, or, or, or present, anyway. Yes, and you can get to do with them what you like. You mm. can build up your moments, you can jump around and build them up into symphonies. I don't know, it's a rather romantic idea, but that's the kind of one I like the best if I had to... I mean, choose. I suppose guilty of romantic ideas, this question of where, what happens to us. I ask this because, and you know, this is sort of confession time, in my office, is an orchid which struggles, to be honest, to, to grow. But it does, it grows steadily. And I've, you know, in the brief moments, and I promise you they're brief when I'm not in a clinic, I'll look at this and think, where does that matter? Where is that stuff that's growing coming from? We take it for granted, there it is, it's growing. But actually, you know, where is it growing from? And then, of course, I went home and looked at my son and thought, well, you're, you know, that's the same for you. Where's this, where's this stuff coming from? <laughs> that's in you. Now, that may be a really, I don't, the looks on your faces aren't, <laughs> uh, they're not reassuring to me, but they, so there's this quote from Monk that says, from my rotting body, flowers will grow, and I am in them, and that is eternity. This continuum, if, in a sense, of that, of the stuff that dissipates from us, then, of course, being fed into other life. Is that, is there any, is a truth in that, or is that fancy? No, I think it's totally true, isn't it? I mean, the sun, I mean, it's, it's all, all the energy is coming from the sun, and it's firing all these... We tend to be rather than pick and choosy what we think we're going to continue to live in. Mm. Yeah. So, for example, I wouldn't mind the heads of the characters hammer through the daisies, Dylan <laughs> Thomas and all that. He makes more beautiful those things, etc. But supposing you're reincarnated in a cockroach or in the dung of a dung beetle, you know, I mean, it, there's no, you can't pick and choose. Your, yes. So you just join, you, as I say, you just become part of the ontological rabble. Mm. And uh, that gives me no comfort at all. It still leaves the question of what you do with the ashes. I've just been reading a book which some of you will have read, I'm sure, by an Indian surgeon called Athel Gawande, yeah. oh, yes. called mm. Being Mortal. Oh, it's a brilliant book. He's giving the wreath lectures uh, at the moment on BBC Radio 4. Anyway, um, Atoll has no particular religious beliefs. His father, who was also a doctor, was a devout Hindu. Um, and, when, and he tended his father through his last illness. Interestingly, actually, he asked his father how he wanted to die. Um, whether he wanted to be conscious, so to speak, to the last moment, or whether he wanted just to pass away in sleep, as it were, and he chose the latter, so Atoll tried to, to do that for him. Anyway, when he, had, he was dead and, and cremated, 
Um, because he was a devout Hindu, the right thing to do was to go to the Ganges, to Benares, and um, put, pour the ashes into the Holy River. So, one morning, very early, five o'clock, there was a little group of them, Atoll and a holy man, and his mother and sister, um, and a pot of ashes, and pushed out into the stream. And the holy man did various rituals. And one of the rituals required Atoll to drink three teaspoons of water from the Ganges. <laughs> <laughs> And I think I, he solved it admirably. He looked up on the internet how many particular <laughs> pollutants there were in the river, and he premedicated himself <laughs> with the necessary antibiotics, and he safely drank three teaspoons of water. And it seems to me a marvelous sort of solution of the great question of whether you are taking a religious view of the of death, and there's some of your Buddhist thing of some afterlife, or whether you think it stops there. He thinks it stops there, but his father thought differently, so he takes precautions. It's a Pascalian reply. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, how you actually face the moment of death is something the book is uh, very much concerned with. And I find it, uh, I'm fascinating not being a doctor, not knowing much about medicine, more fascinating actually, to tell you the truth, than the astronomical stuff. Um, the, <laughs> the astronomical stuff doesn't help me at all, and it makes yeah. me think of, you know, all the stuff about how zillions of, you know, yeah. galaxies and so on. Um, makes me think of, <laughs> makes me think of um, a book by <laughs> Philip Loth. It's one of the Zuckerman books. Oh. Mm. I think it's called Zuckerman Unbound. Anyway, Z Zuckerman hears that his dad's dying. Some hospital out on the West Coast. And Zuckerman's in New York. So he gets a plane, go to his dad's deathbed, and he picks up in the bookstall at the airport a paperback about astronomy. So all the way across, he reads this amazing stuff, like you were talking about, all oh, the zillions of galaxies and so. So he thinks, brilliant idea he had. So he'll sort of lift his dad's spirits on, the de on his deathbed <laughs> by telling him, you know, all this amazing, mind-boggling stuff. And in that respect, his dad's predicament, being in pain and dying, won't matter at all. You know, he'll be, he'll be above it. Um, anyway, he does. He does this. Look at him. Does it? it gives him a lecture on the higher astronomy. And he doesn't really, his father says just one word, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Which later Zuckerman tries to pretend might have been not bastard, he was inarticulate, but better, perhaps better, do you think? But I think bastard is what it says. So, um, so you know, in the, in the, another thing about this book is that it takes literature um, as... <laughs> instead of astronomy, um, as a way of approaching the question of how you face death. Um, and he says, at all, that in medical school, he's now professor of surgery at Harvard, yeah. in medical school, they took a particular short story by Tolstoy, mm. called, yeah, you know, Ireland. Death of Ireland, image, yeah. um, where this um, relatively minor civil servant is, falls off a ladder one day and wounds himself, obviously, internally, and he gets very ill and goes to bed, and he knows he's dying. But no one, the doctors that are expensively called, and his wife, and so on, no one will accept the fact he's dying. And he gets more and more depressed that the reality of his condition is 
evident only to him. And Tolstoy says that what he wanted really, he realizes that what he wanted was simply to be comforted as a sick child is comforted. Mm -hmm. All he wants Actually, that's, that's really what the book's about, how you supply that kind of comfort um, in death. And John, I mean, I, I'm really careful how I phrase this, but is, how do we as, we, as we all age, think about it, death? Because there's a huge um, expectation, perhaps, increasingly, on all of us that we, you know, advance planning, frank conversations, such that, you know, it is now more and more a controlled um, entity. But actually, in, in health, and, you know, I will not in any way mirror your health at your age. I don't now. But do you think about it? Does one think about it as one ages? Sure. Matter of fact, I think you can't study literature as I do without thinking about it, because a great deal of literature is actually about <laughs> it, you know, and about ways of dealing with it. And I suppose my position is kind of ambivalent, as you know, so many people are. I think of Hardy, the poet Hardy, um, there are poets who help and poets who don't. I mean, Philip Larkin doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> because he's terrified. He's simply terrified, you know. He, what he's terrified by, interestingly, is the idea that there won't be anything there. He won't be at all. He won't be anything. And he even sort rejects the Lucretian consolation that you were never anything before. So right. why should you mourn about being nothing in future? And the answer is it's a different thing. You're, you know when you were nothing before, you, didn't know you, were not. you weren't actually looking yeah. at nothing yeah, from yeah. something, and that's the, the worry, isn't it? The, yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, that solution he quotes is from Seneca. Seneca says yeah, that. Well it's that and the whole Lucretian and Seneca yeah, tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, just in case, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and he's, we and may be talking about death. Well, no, I just think that's one of the greatest yeah, medicine yeah. box moments but, but we've had so far. <laughs> Hardy does help a bit, in that Hardy doesn't believe. Um, on the other hand, he sort of hopes. The, two poems, one, The Darkling Thrush, mm. you know, yeah. beautiful, where the bird sings this trilling song and has some hope, which Hardy says, I was unaware, he hasn't got it. Then the one about the oxen, where it's believed the oxen will kneel in the byre at Christmas for the birth of Christ. And Hardy says that he didn't go and watch, but he would have gone and hoped that they were kneeling. Yes. Um, so I thought, I think... Most moderns now would be in that position of between hope and fear, hope and nothing. And reading back in English literature, what you're struck by is how science actually has destroyed all the certainties that were there. We didn't need the National Health Scheme in the 17th century. There wasn't any medicine that would cure you. But if you believed in eternal life, you could die happy. I mean, read Bunyan, you know, Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, which is in every poor house, Bible and Bunyan. And then Bunyan, people die valiant. I mean, Mr. Valiant for truth goes down into the water and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. If you believe that, you don't need the National Health Service. <laughs> <laughs> um, William, I just wondered if I might um, draw you in. So you're, you're particularly perhaps talking about the music room, um, mm. your book about your brother. Um, and within it, two things struck me, that early on in the book, you're talking about coming to know the names of um, flowers in your, in your, in your, um, in your extra what's extraordinary sounding house and garden. And you, and you said at one point that the naming was a kind of recognition. Um, 
And in a way then, to me, the whole book became a, a, almost a process of naming, Name, naming the pathology uh, of your brother's um, epilepsy, mm. but also um, an analysis of this very ambivalent and loving relationship, mm. but of course then of, of, his, of his death. I, and of course naming things in a garden has a particular resonance to the book of Genesis and how part of the creation myth is Adam going around the garden giving things their names and by naming things you you create them and um, I suppose me going around the garden with my father and learning the names of these plants somehow brings them into being just as writing the book and naming these places, naming these people, naming Richard and his my brother Richard and his wonderful um, idiosyncrasies and, and um, uh, talents and, and language is a way of bringing him into being and somehow sort of beating death, which is an old theme of literature. Um, Shakespeare's sonnets are sort of all about that, about how you, you, you beat mortality by preserving people in art. Mm. Uh, but funnily enough, I, I was thinking particularly about my first book, The Snow Geese, which really came out of an experience, my own experience of meeting more my mortality a bit earlier than I wanted to in my early 20s when I was really quite ill with Crohn's disease and had a series of operations. I was thinking about this the other day because I, I remember um, the surgeon was called Mr. Mortensen, my surgeon in Oxford. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I was on a ward in the John Radcliffe in Oxford. It was Ward 6E, and the nurses wore these T-shirts saying, I'm too 6E for my shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and by the... <laughs> by the nurses, uh, the nurses' station on the ward, they had a big white, white clean board with these columns and the names of the patients and the names of the, the consultants that they were under. And the consultants' column was just a little too narrow for the word Mortensen. So <laughs> when my mother came in, she just read William Fine's Mort and thought, um, <laughs> thought oh, no, that's all over. Um, but, I, uh, um, but yes, I think naming... Um, it was so important in the music room and in the snow geese, really, um, naming as a way of uh, incarnating. Um, and, but you, so many thoughts were, were coming at me. I, um, um, what happens to the to the body after death? My brother Richard's brain went to. He had epilepsy very badly and, and <coughs> frontal lobe damage, and his brain went to research. And I, and which I'm only thinking about it now is a sort of afterlife mm. of a kind. And there is, um, I do find some comfort in, in what you might think of as a sort of atomic theory of immortality, um, which I, I find particularly articulated in, in Primo Levi's wonderful story, Carbon, the last of the stories in the periodic table. He's one of my favorite, favorite what books. What happens in that? Well, it's, he, each of these, Primo Levi was a chemist, um, and so he writes this sort of autobiography, but it's some of the chapters of short stories. Carbon is really an essay. But they're each attached to one of the elements in the periodic yeah. table. And in Carbon, he just sets himself the task of um, uh, telling the story of an atom of carbon. And I think I'm right in saying it's the last yes, chapter yes, in yeah, yeah. John's um, favorite book of science. Uh, um, uh, amazing book everyone should get. Um, but, sale, uh, but so he, he just, he imagines an atom of carbon that's first in the, in the ground, and then it's in grass, and then it's eaten by a cow, and then it's in a glass of milk, and then it's drunk by a human being, and it goes into the bloodstream, it becomes the atom of carbon in one of his brain cells. And there's an extraordinary moment at the end where the atom of carbon is in the brain cell that's, that's producing the, 
the, um, action, the action potential that's making him think I'm going to pull, put the full stop now. So the atom of carbon then becomes the dot that you see on the page in front of you. It's absolutely one of the most extraordinary reading experiences because this thing that's going on in your head and your imagination is then Material. made concrete and brought into the world. It's one of the great things. But it does make you think that all of these atoms in one will disperse into other things. And actually, I don't mind if some of my carbon atoms are a cockroach. Mm. What, a, what a laugh. What a, what a, <laughs> uh, um, they could go anywhere. So I do, I, I think Philip Roth's dad would still say bastard if you went and, yeah. and, and told him he should read Prima, Prima Levi. But I do find something consoling in that. And in, in the music room ends with Richard very much alive and singing. Mm. Um, which is extraordinarily moving because I didn't anticipate that at all. So, you know, because the death comes suddenly, the book's, you know, reading along, and then there's a phone call, and then, and then the last couple of pages is him alive at Christmas, just about to sing. I always knew it would end like that. Mm. And the last line of the book, uh, this is a bit of a spoiler alert, but the last <laughs> line of the book is, We all held our breath as he breathed mm. in. And so he's on the point of singing, and so. I, I always knew it would start like that, or would, would end like that. And um, uh, in some way, the book is that song that he's about to, about to sing. And, and um, well, it's the other afterlife that is often talked about at funerals and in memorials of the afterlife in other people's memories and imaginations, which is, does also apply, I think. Mm. I mean, I don't have any um, religious ideas of an afterlife, but I think that sort of atomic theory is a, is a small consolation, yeah. and, and this, Luke, this idea of, of, yes, the blankness from what we come we from. Arrive. But uh, just the other day I was reading a, there's a very short poem by American poet W.S. Merwin, um, and he says, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, the idea of it is, each day without knowing it, we pass through the anniversary of our death. Yes. Uh, we all know our birthday, we have parties, but we're going to die on April the 17th, November the 24th, July the 14th. Who, you shouldn't it, point at people in yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, But that is an extraordinary thought, that each year, without yes. knowing it, we're passing through that mm. moment. Bob well, Ray, just bringing this then now to the healthcare professional patient um, frontier, um, not at all, I mean, in no way presupposing that that is the kind of, you know, the place in which it must be or is always encountered, but nonetheless, it's some of the reason why we're here. How is this realised then, um, both in terms of uh, the honesty with which it's engaged, the content of Atul Gawande's book, the honesty with which it's engaged, the way in which our, our health services are uh, resourced and deployed, and the emphasis, inevitably, that's given to either life-prolonging treatment, palliative care, or indeed the choice, the, 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 the uh, legitimate choice or not, depending on your viewpoint, to choose the time and means of your death. Can I start with you, Bob, perhaps, and come over to Ray? Um, well, I think my experience of, of working with people in palliative care is that People make extraordinary decisions all the time, and they frequently change their mind. And I think the, having the luxury of a little bit of time at the, the end of your life actually grants you some real favors. And I think uh, 
it, it's, it's kind of like being dropped into some kind of existential nightmare, me sitting here with all of this stuff going on, I have to be honest. Uh, it's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, Sam. We won't, put that, uh, we won't put that in the review. But, uh, but uh, I can't, I'm try, racking my brains trying to think the last time a client said to me, I just want to know if I'm going to be an atom at the end of this. <laughs> um, but, um, but I think... Um, that I think the business of, of actually facing our own death and having some time to confront it. And of course, we don't do it alone. We do it with our families and we do it with the people around that are caring for us um, can provoke so many changes and so many uh, insights um, so that people, I, I meet people at the beginning of the work who, who will be very clear about what, how they want to die, where they want to die, how they, their funeral looks, and three months down the road, everything has changed. And uh, I think that's one of the real benefits of, of good end-of-life care, is that given the time, people can make really important, extraordinary decisions about. Uh, and, and of course, it's so important to have the time to be able to do that. Right? People come to believe that, that this is such a valuable <coughs> uh, time for them in their lives. And many people have said to me, uh, this, in some ways, has been the most important and incredible time of my life. And Ray, you said this morning, medicine <clears throat> has a, mi a minimum duty to prolong life, if I remember cor correctly. What, how does that, and particularly your work as an elderly care physician, how, how does that, so the minimum duty to prolong life, a similar duty to, to permit, enable a good death, and then, of course, you know, no secret at all, your views about our um, rights as persons yeah. to be able to um, decide. Those are three potentially conflicting pools, both in terms of duties and rights. I just wondered if you might say a bit about that. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it seems to me that it is, you know, our primary aim in medicine is to prevent or postpone death. We don't prevent it, of course. And our secondary aim is to limit suffering. And those two things could be in complete head-on collision. And actually, Atul Gawande's book is absolutely fantastic about the drivers that are to give people a terrible prolonged death because we cannot set aside hope. And because the most honest oncologist, and of course he himself is an oncologist, the most honest oncologist has to say, well, there is a 2% chance that this may produce two months remission. And of course, 98% of people do not do two months remission, and those who get two months remission may actually get two months of absolute hell, which actually completely spoils and ruins the kind of decision-making and thoughts and conversations that people would have. I mean, you can't have much of a conversation with your nearest and dearest while you're vomiting. You know, it's, so there is a really serious challenge there. I mean, he's very honest, as I'm sure, you know, as, as most oncologists I met, about the limitations of what can be offered. But actually giving up Declaring that something is futile, deciding we must let death have a chance, which is a sort of palliative care strapline, as it were, is extraordinarily difficult. And I can plead guilty to pushing the envelope out further and further to nobody's benefit. In Atul Gawande's sort of particular dispensation in America, of course, there is the other problem conflicting, or, or, or the, com the confounding issue of the patient as retail consumer. You know, I'm going to buy whatever is necessary. Uh, to keep things going. And I don't think we've even begun to address this fundamental conflict between the melioristic approach of medicine to try and make everything better 
and the tragic sense of life, which we must have if we're going to be fully developed human beings. We can't actually square those things. And interesting, I mean, that's going to, after coffee, we're going to have an, an audit, a debate with all of the audience about just that more widely. But just to pick you up on this, no, this idea and throw it open a bit, the primary goal of medicine is to prolong, or, or the, the first goal of medicine is to prolong life, and the second to alleviate suffering. That hierarchy of um, goals, um, and the goals of medicine will come again tomorrow with, with Sarah and Gabriel in our morality session. But what are you convinced of that hierarchy? I wasn't thinking of it as a hierarchy in a way. It's the one no. we think of. You know, right. it, this is the age of innocence, when you think you're getting into medicine to mm. save lives. Mm. Mm. Then there comes an experience. Mm. You're getting into medicine will possibly to save lives, but at least to make lives more bearable. Mm. There then becomes a stage beyond that when you realize you can't do either. Mm. And that, I think, is a very, that is with, that's the age of wisdom, I guess. Yes. I don't mean you can't do that, uh, that generally, but <coughs> there are periods when you can do neither. And I think that's a very difficult time, and that's where I have very much supported assisted dying for people who have got a settled view and wish to have that, you know, with all the safeguards and so on. Yes. Yeah. Bob, did you want to come in on I, that? I just want to just talk about that, uh, that business, Ray, about the, the end of hope. Mm. Because the other thing that I think that people who work in, <coughs> in end-of-life care will probably, I hope, agree with me, is that one of the extraordinary things that happens is that people die, hopefully. It's a different kind of hope. So we meet people who often feel very, very hopeless um, because they realize that, that there is nothing left to do. They are going to die. And we work with that helplessness. Yeah. But what we often encounter is people discovering a new form of hope. They begin to hope for things for their family. All people they, die hopefully or pardon? some die hopefully? Some, not all. No, no, no. no. But, but I have to agree with Bob there. Obviously, what I'm sort of setting aside is what you might call the wrong kind of hope, that these clever... Doctors yeah. will find something that will finally crack it. The miracle, uh, yes. and the miracle cure, and that drug that's available only in Russia, of which mm -hmm. we can, you know, we can all raise two hundred thousand pounds to send our friend across, and so on. Yeah. That's the kind of hope that leads people to terrible ends, yeah. following long odds. But it is interesting. Our language around death is always, almost always, exclusively about hopelessness, and fear, and terror. And that's why we don't talk about death. We use the wrong language, I think, when we talk about death a lot. You know, you were saying, oh, we talk about death all the time. We simply don't. <laughs> Where every time we try and talk about death, we end up turning it into something either funny or something deeply sentimental because we can't really talk about it in the way that is the most helpful way. So it's we are talking difficult. about it, just not authentically. Sorry? So it's, it's, no, it's, I don't yeah. think we do talk about it authentically. Right. Not authentically yeah. enough. Yeah, but no. it's, yeah. And it's understandable why. It's, it's like it's the great... End. I, I think one of the reasons is death is actually inconceivable, because in order to think about death, you still have to be alive, and you cannot get outside of yourself to imagine yourself absent from the totality of the world. So I think it's death's inconceivability, and also, obviously, the terror of dying, mm. and the residual terror of what might happen to you, mm. and even atheists have, after you've died. I think those kinds of things, but it's the fundamental inconceivability, I think, yeah. that, that stops us digging because death is as deep as life. It's as deep as what it takes away. It's an omni-ravenous zero that takes yeah. away the biggest. I think, um, uh, was it Chris who said that it was, it, it, it's like a birth. Of course, it's not like a birth, but it's as deep as a birth. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the subtraction sense. sum is as big as the addition sum that is a birth. Yeah. I guess that's what you were reading. Yeah. And, and, and we have the saying that life is sacred. I think we were saying this last night, probably had to too much red wine. But I'm wondering whether, you know, is death, is dying actually the most sacred act that human beings can do? Well, that's certainly how it would have been looked on in the 17th century, of course, holy dying. Yeah, 
Yeah, I know dated, but of course some people do still believe. Yeah. Quite a lot of Muslims, for example, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, around the world. So it's not exactly that the world has gone atheist, only mm. some of us. Um, <laughs> and, um, and for the ones who do believe, um, then of course a lot of the terror is, is presumably taken away, except of course you might be damned. Mm. I talked about Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the end of part one of Pilgrim's Progress is when Mr. Ignorant gets right to the gates of heaven, but hasn't got his certificate and he's thrown out, and, and Bunyan says, then I saw that there was a way to hell, even from the gates of heaven. Mm. Yeah, you could <coughs> tip up at the last moment. So, no, there was terror, but of course, there was certainty too. You knew there was either terror or eternal life. Yeah. Um, Christopher, there's now there's no knowledge at all. It's an absolute question mark, hence, as you say. Yeah. A great passage from... Um, Carol Shields, who I know you, you, you know, yes. first, um, you've, you one of the first people to publish her in this country. I'm a great fan of Carol Shields. This is from the Stone Diaries, which always strikes me. Something has occurred to her, something transparently simple, something she's always known, it seems, but never articulated, which is at the moment of death occurs while we're still alive. Life marches right up to that wall of final darkness, one extreme state of being butting against another. Not even a breath separates them, not even the blink of an eye. A person can go on and on, tune into the daily music of food and work and weather and speech right up to that last minute so that not a single thing gets lost. Mm. That complete, uh, um, minute yeah. separation between two very extreme states. Well, I went to visit her a week before, or perhaps even four or five days before she died, and it's rather like you were saying, it's, it was just inconceivable. Mm. As, as much as she was suffering, she was still the same mm. funny, witty person. And there had to be a moment I left and shut the door, mm. you know, and I kept thinking, what's, there's going to be a last word yes. she says. And actually the word was ca carousel. You know, I always remember <laughs> as I shut the door, she said carousel. I mean, I can't remember the sentence that came before it, but I remember that was the last word. And then she wasn't, you know, it's... it's Extraordinary. And I recognize that with patience when you, can, you, when you know that things are starting to um, perhaps change in their trajectory or momentum and thinking and, and see, seeing people who you've got to know very well, very fond of. Um, and I know that in uh, days, weeks or months, they will not be here. Yet I'm standing, sitting there talking mm. with them and to them. Now that, that is a very um, difficult feeling to describe because it is a sense of vertigo in, in, the, in the room as to what will, what will happen to you, uh, where will you go? Um, but that's in a, in a sense, it reveals something about life, which is it's composed of small change mm -hmm. all the time, whatever you, you can never be, as you like, as big as your metaphysical condition, which is that of mortality in which everything is taken away. So I guess your feeling that you were saying to her, good morning, Rod, and good afternoon, seems contingent and small mm. compared to the fact that she was about to literally become totally cancelled out. Mm. And, that, you know, in the face of death, one does feel that anything you do is incredibly small change. Mm. That yes. slightly comes back to what we were talking about this morning, I think, about talking about humans being in the detail. Mm. And yet, you know, there we are, we can value our lives because of conversations or shared meals or whatever, and that comes beyond any reductive description that there possibly can be or may ever conceive. 
And yet suddenly there's no detail at all. I mean, it's the opposite of detail. Yeah. It's yeah. complete annihilation. Yeah. It's, it's that blankness that's... I mean, it's not even dark when you've died. No. Because that requires perception to see that it's dark. Mm. You know, yes. you know, death is dateless and dataless. Mm. Yeah. William, it struck me at the end of the music room when your your mother's words about Richard, when she said, "We are rich in what we have lost," mm. and repeated it mm. a few times, almost, and it felt as though it was a spontaneous uh, something that she felt passionately at that. Well, it was, and it was also, I think, as as the book was this body of language, that miniature body of language, we're rich in what we have lost, was an attempt to keep something of Richard in the world. He loved language, he loved wordplay. The fact that here was a little pun on his own name, Rich, mm. we're rich in what we have lost, was a sort of breathing something into him, keeping him in, in, in the room. But I was wondering, just to pick up on this conversation, I uh, was wondering if whether it was only the sort of weakening hold of religion that, that made us not have this conversation so seriously because um, as, as John was saying in the 16th and 17th centuries there was this whole idea of the ars moriendi, the art of dying and that people would, would have a skull on their desk to remind them of what was to come and I was talking about this with my parents recently who just moved into an old people's home together and their bedroom looks out over on looks out onto a graveyard, and uh, <laughs> which, luckily enough, we were able to laugh about. And I was saying, this is like the Ars Moriendi. Every morning, they open their curtains, and, <laughs> and, and there it is. But I, so, so there was a time when we spoke very seriously about what, a, what the right way to die was. Montaigne wrote about it a lot. I want to die when I'm picking my cabbages, or whatever it was. And now, I, I wonder why it has, in those intervening centuries, I, I, think, sort of I think people who, um, who are dying and who have the time and someone to listen to them will often talk about it. Mm. So I think if we really want to know what the experience of dying is like, we're just talking to the wrong people. <laughs> we should be talking to the people who are dying. Who are dying. Sure. And, and actually they will tell you, they will tell you extraordinary yeah. things. But and oh, can I just but make this point about detail as well? Yeah. Yeah. You know, detail becomes phenomenally important to the survivor. Oh, yeah. It really does. Mm. And so people don't just die and think, well, I, I don't have any belief, so it's all gone, it's all finished, and then leaves behind a family who'll go, well, dad went. You know, it, it, it isn't like that. You know, there's, there's, there's all this degree of wondering and uncertainty. And actually, there's, there's something rather beautiful about all of that. It, mm. it, it's really rather amazing. Mm. And, so, and it's also a natural part of the way that we grieve and the way that we process our way through loss and bereavement. We start to make sense of our loved one's detail. We use that detail. It becomes the way that we process the next few months, the next year. And bit by bit, you know, we make sense of something that we can't really make sense of. But all of these things are really, really important. And that's, that's really why. Sorry. <coughs> well, that's also partly the art of what we do. I mean, there's the, there's the experience for the person who is coming, going out of existence. And then there's also how we deal the survivors yeah. with the death and, and actually I was thinking when Carol died she didn't believe in any afterlife at all but she also insisted that there was no memorial no funeral nobody came to the funeral and that was actually really hard mm -hmm. but, and so that's I think mm -hmm. where it's then important for those who are behind to have an art of mm. dying for the living 
Well, I was going to ask you about the conversations you've had yeah. just over the, you know, you've had numerous conversations translated into, into, into song yeah. um, at, at that point with, with dying mm. persons. <clears throat> now, so either you can tell us, or there is, a, is there a clip that we could listen to? That well, I, I brought a clip along, and this, this, I, I, I brought this because um, we were thinking about frontiers. And when I was thinking about it, I was, I was thinking about the, the frontier of the, you know, the big question, really, around assisted death and the difference between supported dying and assisted death. And uh, I um, have a very, very clear uh, opinion around, uh, uh, around that subject. I, I simply don't support um, uh, assisted suicide. Whilst I do, I've met people for, for whom I've fully understood how important it was for them to die as soon as possible. And, and, and and could see completely why they would want it to be over quickly. But on so many occasions I've, I've, I've met, and, and, and I know my colleagues have had the same experiences, met people who will come to you and say, I want to die and I want to die now. I want some help, can you help? You know, take me to Switzerland, do that job. And, <coughs> um, and really what I think I've, I've experienced mostly is that if, if people have enough time to be able to talk about that and work through that and if we have the time to listen and to listen in the right way and for them to tell their story and one of the wonderful things about music therapy songwriting in particular is it, it, it helps you to help people create a shape around it and then to look at it that people will frequently change their minds I have to say the law of is proposed allows for the change of mind. And just one little statistic, one in 50 people in hospices have no relief from their major symptoms for the last three months of life. Mm. And you can unpack eternity out of three months. And that relates to how we remember those who've died. And if we see them through a lens of unrelieved suffering, that itself adds to the burden of the loss. Mm. But obviously we could argue the toss about yeah, the yeah. law and so on. Yeah. 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 Can we play the clip? Yeah, uh, I just need to give it a little context. Yeah, Can have I we got that? it ready? Yeah, to just well, brilliant. So this, this is a, a lady I call Marie, and uh, when she came to see me, she she said, <coughs> I, "I want to die, and I want some help." Um, she'd had an extraordinary life when she was seven years old. On her confirmation day, she'd watched her best friend approaching the church uh, as a storm blew a tree down and crushed her friend to death. Her very first experience of death was at seven, on a very very significant day. Her grandparents' home burnt to the ground, they died. Her brother committed suicide. Her father committed suicide. So we have a lady here who has an enormous amount of per permission around death and suicide. She was already dying anyway. She knew she only had a couple of months to live. And so I said, well, so what's the rush? And she said, well, I become invisible to my family. Uh, they don't see me, they don't hear me, they don't need me, I'm of no use. And, and I, I think I just sat and, and heard a lifetime of, of hurt. And I told her, it feels like a lifetime of hurt. And we made a sort of a contract that we'd get together once a week, every week. And as long as she felt it was helpful enough, she would come back each week. And she, we met for five weeks. In the fourth week, she wrote this uh, to her family. Uh, I'm watching you from this field of grass. You can see me, but you don't need me. I can see you talking, but only hear myself. If you notice me, 
I'd run away. And we were sitting at the piano, and we were just noodling about with a very simple melody. And um, so I said, sing it. Can you sing it? And with a bit of permission, she started to sing it. And the minute she sang it, she began to cry. And I'd never seen her cry in all of these hours. And she cried for a long time, and then set about writing the second verse. And what you'll hear in the recording is her singing verse one, and then listen to the words that she uses in verse two. And, and what I think I heard was that she changed her mind at this very moment. So if you could play the clip. I am watching you from this field of grass. You can see me. simple I think just being able to acknowledge how much she loved her family and still cared for them and still wanted to care for them despite the fact that she knew she was dying um, and, and the words in that second verse you know, the, the burning house and the falling mm. tree they're going back 50 years in her history and she's able she contextualizes this so she changed her mind and she died at home with the family three months later We're not going to take questions. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the extraordinary things, perhaps the only real reason for doing any of this project is it um, brings extraordinary thinkers and people um, into an important conversation. And um, that's what I have to say about these gents. Um, thank you all very much. <laughs>